I think the most important open scientific question today, and literally nobody knows the answer to this question, is what is consciousness? Like, why is it that this sense of being uh, a self, this self-awareness, why does this arise out of basically a hunk of meat that's sitting in your cranium like how does that how's that possible what is that is there an evolutionary reason for that i'm not really sure but in any event and i think you also have to separate consciousness from intelligence so we already have intelligent machines i mean your thermometer is intelligent to overcome you must educate Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. Today we're speaking with Brian Beckham. He is a trial attorney, owner of VB Attorneys. He's a podcaster, his podcast. Lessons from Leaders, excellent podcast. He's a computer scientist, a philosopher, and a trial lawyer. Brian, could you please introduce yourself? Let people know just a little bit about you, please. Yeah, sure, Ed. Uh, I, I appreciate you saying all that. And it's really, really awesome to be on your show today. I, uh, I have kind of a eclectic uh, background, I guess, to say the least. Um, I'm a military brat. My dad was an Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, flew 200 combat missions over Vietnam. We moved around all over the place. But I didn't really, you know, I was I was kind of an athlete growing up, kind of a jock. I played basketball, and that's all I wanted to do in college. So when I went to college, that was really all that was on my mind. I was <clears throat> focused on playing for the Texas A&M basketball team. Didn't know what I wanted to study, but this is the early 90s, and computers uh, at least desktop computer, personal computers were just now becoming a thing. And I like computers. And so I was like, well, what the heck? I'll, I'll, I'll take a computer science degree. What I didn't realize when I made that decision, Ed, was computer science requires you to take a bunch of physics and electrical engineering and math courses and stuff like that, which, you know, I didn't like at the time. I actually love math now, but uh, I needed I needed another major in order to keep my GPA from being destroyed by all these math classes. So I took a couple of philosophy courses in the computer science department at Texas A&M. You were not only allowed, but you were required to take a minor. And what most people did is they would do electrical engineering or math or physics or something that they thought was complementary to computer science. I, I did philosophy both because I enjoyed it. And I made A's in the, in the classes. And it turns out, Ed, that even though computer science and philosophy sounds like, you know, kind of two ends of, you know, on the one hand, you got the hard, quote, hard sciences. On the other hand, you got the 
kind of liberal arts type of thing. The original computer scientists, a lot of them were philosophers. And matter of fact, they used to call science natural philosophy. So there's a lot of overlap that's not readily apparent. But in any event, go there, play basketball, end up getting a computer science and philosophy degree. And then I tell people, I spent four years in a computer lab with a bunch of nerds, and I didn't want to do that all my life. So I decided to go to law school. And what do I do now? 25 years later, I sit behind a computer screen talking to a bunch of nerds. So anyway, it, it's it's an odd uh, kind of background. But and, and and by the way, most of it was accidental. It was not pre-planned. I didn't plan to get computer science and philosophy degrees and then go to law school. That was the farthest thing from my mind. But, you know, it turns out that I've had to I've gotten a chance to spend the, the last 30 years kind of observing uh, the development of technology. You know, certainly there was plenty of technology before the early 90s, but the explosion of it has been kind of exponential over the last 30 years, which has been super fun to watch. And the other thing is, you know, and I've said this on a bunch of different podcasts, the there's a lot of things going on in the world from a technological standpoint right now that are big, big issues, big ethical issues, AI, what's that going to do with people's jobs? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to pass the Turing test? What does it mean to interact or have a relationship with a chatbot? Uh, what happens if we have, we are in the presence of something that's intelligent, all these, you know, what do we do about uh, cryptocurrency? What do we do about blockchain? What do we do about, Cybersecurity. What do we do about disinformation online? What do we do about the fact that Twitter is a cesspool of disinformation or these other social media sites? And here's the thing. I don't have the answer to any of those questions, but here's what I do know. They're not technical questions. These questions should not be answered by people like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, who have absolutely no training or skill or special talents when it comes to the ethics and the morality and the philosophy behind these things. So I think what we, where we get into trouble in this society right now, Ed, Elon Musk right. had enough money to buy Twitter that all of a sudden makes him some brilliant moral philosopher. Not only does it not make him a brilliant moral philosopher, it actually, I think I would argue makes him worse at making these decisions because he's got all these horrible incentives uh, that are not consistent. Elon, the, the the incentives that he or Mark Zuckerberg or people like this have are not the same incentives that the users have. As a matter of fact, they are opposed. They're like Twitter. You know, there's a famous saying in technology, Ed. Uh, if you're not paying for the product, you're the product. Like you are Elon Musk's right. product. He is selling you. He is selling you to advertisers. Mark Zuckerberg is selling your attention to advertisers, Jack Dorsey, when you had Twitter. So th these, and I'm not saying these are bad people or anything like that. I'm just saying they don't know anything else than any of us about the moral and ethical implications of some of these technologies. And so what I, what I, the philosophy degree actually came in a lot more handy for me, not because I know the answers to these questions, but at least I know something about the framework in which to look at the questions, if that makes any sense. So I know that probably yep. went on a little bit too long, but that that's kind of uh, that's kind of my background. And then the law thing, I mean, I needed to make some money, number one. But number two, the law thing, you know, is it, it fits perfectly in this because 
once you understand the tech and then you talk about the ethics and the philosophy of the tech, then you got to make rules. There has to be some rules to govern how we interact with each other. And so, I don't know, I feel pretty lucky about the course of my career and my education. And again, it was not planned out. It was just kind of pure luck, but I, but I kind of feel pretty lucky about it. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating where you've been, what you've been through, you know, it's well-rounded and versed, uh, you know, law, it's tricky. And a lot of people don't understand that there are specialties within the law and some of your specialties, you know, include injury, but maritime law is kind of interesting. And you've helped on some of these huge cases that have blown up nationally. Everybody recognizes some of these. How does that make you feel as a lawyer, first off? And what made you actually decide to go that way with your law? Yeah, good question. Both both those are good questions. So um, let me take the second question first. When I went to law school, had no idea what I wanted to do. I don't have any lawyers in my family on either side as far back as I can trace. Like, I'm the first one. Didn't grow up around lawyers. I didn't know a single lawyer growing up. Not one. There was not a single lawyer in my neighborhood. Now the neighborhood I live in, there but seems like half the people went to law school. But but that's that wasn't the case in, you know, living on Air Force bases or living right off base. And so I really went to law school because when I was in college, I was a member of the Texas A&M Corps of Cadets, which is like West Point. And I was in the leadership position and I was able to help some cadets that were having some problems and I liked it. And so I decided to go to law school. But when I got there, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Well, the law school I went to, University of Texas, most people go to big law firms, at least initially. And so that's what I thought I was supposed to do. But my second year in law school, I signed up for an admiralty class. Only reason I signed up for an admiralty class was because someone told me the professor, a guy named David Robertson, was the best professor at UT Law School. So I went and took this class. I was fascinated by it. I mean, there's all these cases talking about piracy in the 1700s, all these crazy things that happen offshore. And I was like, man, that's really cool. And the professor was amazing. Didn't think about it again. For four years, I graduated from law school. I go to one of these big firms representing Fortune 500 companies, decide that's not for me, go to this small firm. And lo and behold, one of the partners does admiralty work. And I was like, this is cool. I I remember this from law school. And so, again, uh, a little bit of a happen, a little bit of a happenstance. You know, it wasn't like this. I I didn't go to law school and say, I want to be a maritime lawyer. I didn't go to law school and say, this is what I want to do. I went to law school kind of with an open mind. And, I, you know, I can tell you when I first got to law school, I was getting letters from Silicon Valley law firms as a first year before I even made grades because I was a computer science major. And they were like, come be a patent lawyer. And so I was getting heavily recruited to do patent law. And I asked a, a couple of patent lawyers, hey, what's patent law law like? And they said, that's like writing a research paper every week. And I was like, that sounds terrible. (laughs) So anyway, I kind of stumbled into it. And it's a specialty practice. Not many lawyers in the country do it. 
Uh, I mean, I could probably list on both hands the, you know, maybe 10 to 20 law firms across the country that do maritime work on a regular basis, at least on my side of the docket. But it's awesome. I mean, it's amazing. My most famous case was uh, the Captain Phillips case with people that may remember the American ship that got attacked by Somali pirates and the Navy SEALs came and killed all the pirates except for one. And uh, I, I represented the crew of that ship. That was on the New York Times, Dateline, and Good Morning America. And it was it was kind of crazy. But it it's a the offshore maritime community is totally different. Uh, everybody knows everybody. It's a small community, especially in America, because we've decided uh, as a country that money is more important than people. And so it, the American maritime community is small because most of the ship owners want to pay slave wages to Indonesians and Filipinos primarily. Those countries allow that to occur to their people. They allow their people to be treated like chattel slaves, essentially. They have no legal rights. Uh, and so in the American ship owners, all they care about is making as much money as they can. And so they try to hire the cheapest labor you can possibly hire. And that's bad for human beings, but most, more importantly, maybe it's bad for the country because what it does is it exposes us to uncontrolled uh, potential security breaches. Like, for example, can you imagine if every single stewardess on an American airline was Indonesian and we were paying them 50 cents an hour, what, what you'd be looking at? That, that's a major security issue like a major security issue. And so this is a political issue in our country that is, goes well beyond the maritime law. So for instance, everybody remembers during COVID, uh, we didn't have any supplies. I mean, we literally had no masks. Right. We, we, had, we didn't have enough uh, disinfectant. Like our country does not produce these things anymore. And nobody pays attention to it uh when everything's going great and uh but when things go bad all of a sudden we're like wait a second you're kidding me we don't have the ability to produce n95 mask in this country well ask this is the thing like ask yourself why that is and the reason it's the same reason with the jones act you have groups of you have interest groups that literally care more about money than they care about the country like they put their financial interests first over yours and I. And that's what they care about. And so if you can produce N95 masks cheaper in a third world country with no safety standards that treats their people like slaves, that's what they do because you can make more money. And, and the thing about it is, is oftentimes the people's, people that are making these decisions are, are doing the right thing from a legal perspective because the law in America and in most first world countries requires business like corporations are required to maximize shareholder profit legally. If they don't do that, they will get sued. And by the way, that's the way the law is written. Doesn't have to be written that way, but it is. And so what what we find are so we find ourselves in this in this constant kind of tug and put push and pull situation between 
maximizing the economic advantages of whatever it is we're talking about, while at the same time realizing that maybe there are other considerations that are just, or, or maybe even more important than the economic side of things. So that that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the, the Jones Act is one of those few laws that still exist that, that, that actually provides some protections to people that need it. I mean, workers comp, everybody, basically all 50 states, you get hurt on the job, you can't sue your employer no matter what. And it's a problem because like in Texas, if you get hurt on the job, you have to go through the workers comp system and the workers comp system is run by the insurance companies that pay for the workers comp. Yes. So that all, all these things are, you know, there's basically, I, I've gotten to the point in my life, I'm 50 now, where I don't really care that much about what people say anymore. What I care about is what they do. And so, yes. for example, when somebody tells me, you know, waves the flag and says, I love cops and I love the military, and then turns around and says, I don't want to pay any taxes. I just look at him like, who do you think pays these people? Like, uh, who was paying my dad when he was a lieutenant colonel? <laughs> the taxpayers were. And so, you know, there's a lot of, there, and I think the art of politics right now is really <laughs> kind of about bringing people uh, away from each other, like making people mad at each other. And there was a time yeah. where that wasn't necessarily the case, where it was more focused on, Kind of what we could do to bring people together. My 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 podcast lessons from leaders, by the way, focuses solely on that type of leadership. It focuses solely on positive leadership. What we can do to bring people together. I have people from all different walks of life, purposefully, because I want to illustrate that people generally are pretty decent, no matter where they're from. Um, but but to me, that's you know I, what I call it is I call it the Panama Canal test, Ed. So here's the Panama uh -huh. Canal test. Could the United States build the Panama Canal today? That's an interesting question. Uh, I still want to say yes, we can. Maybe a better way to put it is not could we, but would politically, would we be able to get people together enough to provide no. the finances and the resources <laughs> to get it done. Because here's what would happen, right, Ed? If it was a Democratic president that proposed it, the Republicans and Rupert Murdoch would figure out 5 million reasons why it's the worst thing ever and they're a bunch of socialists. Yes. If it was a Republican yep. who proposed it, the Democrats would figure out 500 different reasons why he's a fascist and this is terrible and he just cares about rich people. And so we That's have right. these... We have these the language, like the stories in our head that we tell ourselves right now are so utterly bizarre. And, you know, the, in my experience, and this is one of the reasons I started my podcast, was they're also not true. So I started my podcast in the middle of quarantine because I got so sick of seeing all this stuff online, people being so negative and yelling at each other. And I'm like, God dang, how about let's get a little positivity out there. And yeah. what I've what I've noticed is like I'm you know when I'm getting ready for a trial I'll do a focus group and I'll bring in a super diverse group of people to serve as a jury and I'll tell you every single I've done this hundreds of times 
every single time, people get along. And they're sitting here debating very, very tough issues. But people, when people, normal people get along well, it's it's this uh, kind of political superstructure that yes. get, gets put above us. I mean, like Rupert Murdoch doesn't make any money if people aren't pissed off. Ted Turner doesn't make any money if people That's aren't right. pissed off, right? So there's no money. <laughs> there's Yeah, there's no money in Fox News trying to bring everybody together. You know? That's right. So, well, well, it's it, it goes back to the shock jock era. And, yeah. you know, those those disgusting things get the view. Yeah, that that that's right. And, uh, you know, blood cells, <laughs> sex yes. cells, you know, that whole that whole concept. It, and the it, difference I, the difference nowadays, though, Ed, and this is this I, I, I think it's largely been true that there's been fundamental philosophical differences in this country between the quote left and the quote right. The difference nowadays is there's been nuclear fuel poured on top of that because of the way we can be manipulated by these massively powerful algorithms. So, I mean, just your brain, your, every time you go online, especially when you go like social media, you, it's your brain versus supercomputers, basically. And these supercomputers are feeding you. Like, I'll just give you one example. Facebook has, I've heard the number, a thousand, thousands of psychologists and psychiatrists on staff because they want to be able to develop algorithms that manipulate and take advantage of our cognitive biases and some of the weaknesses in how our brain works. And so it's literally your brain. Every time you go on Facebook, it's your brain versus a thousand uh, PhD psychologists and engineers at Facebook who are trying to make your brain work the way they want it to work. So one example, then this is just one small example. Everybody will know exactly what I'm talking about. Ed, if you get a notification that one of your friends tagged you in a picture, you will absolutely look at that, right? And... <laughs> And the social media companies game it to where you can't see the picture unless you actually go to the site. And so that's just one little psychological trick amongst thousands of psychological tricks that they use to uh, manipulate our mind. And of course, manipulating us by making us angry or emotional is uh, a very effective way of getting people to be more engaged with the product. And then when you put on top of that, these powerful algorithms and unlimited computing power, it's a losing battle. I mean, the only way to win that battle is not to fight it, essentially just to stay away from social media as much as you can. Yep. I agree with that 100%. What is it? Uh, you know, when AI first started appearing it, it kind of made everybody go wow it started with quantum you know computer and they they really have this vision that it's more than something that is programmed now i i understand machine learning and i understand that if you show this uh model 1000 cats 
it's going to kind of understand what it's seeing. So even though we're feeding these models with different input datas, it's still programmed information. And I was listening to a podcast you were speaking and you mentioned Neil deGrasse, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he simply says, when it gets to a certain point, just unplug it. <laughs> and, and I think that's very important for people to understand and realize because the age that we are living in with all the disinformation, it's all pre-programmed. You can actually see it in a lot of these chatbots that they're putting their bias into the programming. And yeah. if you watch and you're intelligent enough to understand that these forces are after your pocketbook, that's really the psychological nature behind the drive of all of this work towards AI. So I'm wondering how much of it is truly hype instead of nonfiction reality. Yeah, <clears throat> this is, I don't know if you did this on purpose or not, Ed, but this is one of, if not the most important question in computer science today and probably philosophy, okay? Yes. And and it is it is it is probably the thing that fascinates me the most right now and it's the thing that's fascinated me the most for probably the last 5 years the question you're asking essentially is what is intelligence like what does it hmm. mean to be intelligent and what does it mean to be conscious now there's a question below the that question which is what is consciousness? Okay. Yes. And nobody knows the answer to that question. Uh, you know, there's there's a number of science uh, the open scientific questions. I think the most important open scientific question today, and literally nobody knows the answer to this question, is what is consciousness? Like, why is it that this sense of being uh, a self? this self-awareness, why does this arise out of basically a hunk of meat that's sitting in your cranium? Like, how does that, how's that possible? What is that? Is there an evolutionary reason for that? I'm not really sure. But in any event, and you know, I think you also have to separate consciousness from intelligence. So we already have intelligent machines. I mean, your thermometer is intelligent in, yes. in a narrow sense, right? The chess playing uh, computers, the Go playing computers, they're intelligent in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. But what what most most people in in my fields consider artificial general what, what they consider like true machine intelligence is the phrase is called artificial general intelligence, and that basically means being human. And there's a test, the famous test from a British mathematician and computer science named Alan Turing, which is called the Turing test. Without getting into the complicated details, he proposed this, I think, in the 40s, 30s or 40s. If if you if you could be across from a 
uh, a machine of some sort and you cannot, when you're interacting with it, you cannot tell if it's human or not, then it's intelligent. That's, I mean, that's a really high level kind of breakdown of the Turing test, but you know, so for example, for people that have seen Westworld on HBO, if like you're looking at a robot that, and you cannot distinguish at all between whether it's a human or a robot, then it's intelligent. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure that's a, I'm not sure that's a good test. And, and by the way, I think some of these chatbots are already passing the Turing test. Um, but from my perspective, I, I can tell you, like, for example, I've driven a Tesla for 10 years. So I've kind of seen the evolution of self-driving and the car is an idiot. I mean, it's not smart at all. Like you can mm. see it making decisions that a four-year-old could easily make. Okay. So if the lanes aren't marked perfectly, that car is a four-year-old child. It's not smart at all. If you're on the highway and it's clearly marked, it seems like it knows exactly what it's doing, but it doesn't. And uh, so here's another example of kind of something that may seem smart, but it's actually not smart. When the self-driving cars came out, one of the problems they were having was if it got behind a car that had a bike on the back, like a bike rack where the bike is perpendicular to the back of the car. Yeah. Yep. The the machine would interpret that as there's a car in front of you and there's a bike traveling yep. perpendicular, right? Uh, literally, you could ask a, a probably a two and a half year old child, hey, junior, is that bike attached to that car? And it would immediately know, right? Well, the, the, the yeah. self-driving computers had no idea. Well, why didn't they have any idea? There's some sort of kind of fuzzy intelligence, or I don't know exactly what you would call it. Computer science, we used to call it fuzzy logic, but there's ability to take kind of an incomplete, weird set of data, and the human mind can immediately interpret it without having to go through a bunch of other things. The other thing is, is like, imagine like these pitchers throwing baseballs. A computer would have to calculate the exact momentum, angular force, the weight of the base. It'd have to do literally millions of calculations every single time it threw the baseball, whereas it becomes a subconscious process to us. And we don't have to think about it at all, really. So that piece of intelligence, I haven't seen any evidence at all that that kind of intelligence exists in machine form yet. Now, that doesn't mean it won't eventually exist. I'll tell you another interesting little side note on this. Ed, have you ever seen those CAPTCHA forms where you have to like yes. say, I'm not a robot, and then you have to identify what which pictures show traffic lights, okay? Yeah. Most people don't realize that those are not really security programs. Those programs were created for all of us. We're training AIs when we answer those questions. So every time you say right. these are all the cars, that data goes to some sort of deep learning that's right. Model and it just processes it. And so, what basically the way that some of these quote intelligent um, self driving cars and things like that, they don't use intelligence, they just use brute force. So, if you can show five billion pictures of bicycles, eventually it'll be able to say, okay, I recognize that's 
that rate there looks exactly like picture 322,501,000. And I remember that we had tagged that as being a bike. So I'm going to say that's a bike. Uh, that's yep. not intelligence in the way I commonly understand it. That's You know what that is? That's memory. That's just being able to retrieve items from memory. And so, but but in any event, the, you know, the problem is, so Neil deGrasse Tyson said just unplug it, which is really pithy and funny, but <laughs> it's also completely idiotic because it demonstrates a complete and total misunderstanding about how technology actually works. Like an, an intelligent machine would never it wouldn't know you were going to unplug it before you knew you were going to unplug it. Like that would never, ever work. Plus, it would have already anticipated that as a potential existential threat, and it would have created 5 million backups. So when you unplugged it, it shocked you to death, and then it just plugged itself back. I mean, it's just not, it's just not practical when you're talking about it. I mean, you're talking about a dumb device, unplug it. When you're talking about a smart device, that doesn't work. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. All of this technology and, you know, just from the eighties till now, it's exponential. It's a growth cycle. That's for sure. And where is it going? It's, it's a fascinating concept. Now I've talked with Gordon, he's a entertainment lawyer. Uh, and he talks a lot about this and needing to get a handle on the laws surrounding the AI. I think it's moving too fast. I, I think, can you actually make a law that will be a law long enough to be adequate for the technology that's just seemingly growing at an exponential rate. How do we handle this? It's another phenomenal question, Ed, a phenomenal question. You know, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example, another perfect example of this. Microsoft in the 90s got sued by the Justice Department for having a monopoly, which they clearly did. And anybody that mm -hmm. says otherwise is an idiot or is being paid by Microsoft. Microsoft also argued that uh, this lawsuit, all they were doing, they were better innovators than everybody else. That's also not true, demonstrably not true. What Microsoft was good at was business. They were super duper cutthroat. They bought the technology for Internet Explorer. They essentially pilfered the Windows technology, which was still terrible because they based it on an operating system and a, a programming language that's not secure. But, but, but the, I mean, and again, there's nothing wrong with being a great business. Micro, Bill Gates is a very, very cutthroat businessman. Reminds me a little bit of John D. Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller openly stated that he thought capitalism was bad because it created lower prices and instability. He actively sought out monopolies in the oil industry. He said monopolies were better. He was not a free market. Everybody says John Rockefeller was a free market guy. Doesn't know anything about John Rockefeller. Bill Gates kind of the same way. So Bill Gates and Microsoft get nailed 
for having a monopoly, which they should have been nailed for. And by the time the trial was over, they didn't have a monopoly anymore. <laughs> like Google and some other companies had had caught up with them. And so the court system's too slow. Uh, and that that's a that's a major problem. And, and we got to do something to address that because a lot of these more savvy companies realize that even if they're doing something they shouldn't be shouldn't be doing, even if ultimately they know they're going to get busted, they know that the window is so long that they can just sit back and collect whatever it is they're collecting in profit. And by the time anything happens, they'll have made so much money. It kind of doesn't matter anymore, if you know what I mean. So yep. it, 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 it's a it's a real issue. Tech moves, moves so fast and the law moves so slow <laughs> that... Yeah. You know, joining those two, it's just there's just going to naturally be conflict because those two, those the, the speed of those two things is just is so different. I, what I worry about a little bit, Ed, is the fact that most of our politicians don't aren't intelligent enough to even understand the issues, right? So, yeah. like, I've had a I've had a guy on my podcast. He he just bowed out of the Republican race he actually should be the nominee because he's by far the smartest and most reasonable person that was in the race but in the interesting turn well of he's out that i, that's, I was <laughs> gonna say you actually have to be dumb and a weirdo nowadays to win so he was he's yeah. but anyway the point is he's a computer scientist and he was also in the cia's undercover cia officer for 10 years in the middle east and he deeply deeply appreciates the issues with china the issues with technology I mean, he he deeply, deeply appreciates that. Not many people do. And those are the, like, where you go to the bathroom, nobody, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Whether Mr. Potato Head or Bud Light is woke. I mean, these yep. are such stupid side issues. Yes. When when we, you can literally go online and you can see the Chinese Communist government plans to be the world superpower, only world superpower by 2050, which is their 100th year anniversary. and. They're heading that way, full steam ahead. And meantime, what are we doing? Yep. We're talking about whether somebody should be drinking a, a certain kind of beer. Yeah. You know, whether, you know, we're passing Crazy. laws in Utah uh, against <laughs> trans people, and there's one trans person in the whole state that this affects. I mean, this is just, a, <laughs> this is this is comical. These are children leading us. And so, yes. you know, hopefully, hopefully we get a little maturity at some point, but. I, I worry well, a little bit more about the fact that our 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 leaders. It's not that they're not doing anything about some of these problems. Is they don't even they, they they can't even wrap their little brains around what the problems are in the first place. Out of touch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand that. You know, it, it doesn't appear that we are a republic, a rule of law at all anymore. And it is scary, but at the same time, you know, it takes all of these intrusive things to happen to us to wake us up. Yeah. So all of this tends to go in cycles. If we allow these cycles to continue, it's our own fault. Yeah. And that's why we have reasoning ration and morals 
but we really need to take some time and start thinking about implying some of these morals back into our system. I know a lot of people don't like it because, well, it's rules, isn't it? And people don't like to abide by the rules. And that's where really, I think we've let those little tiny things go for so long. Now we're in this point where it's coming to a head and we're going to actually have to put the rule of law back into our society or we are going to not have a society. That's yeah. my take on this. Yeah. I, 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 so, I, yeah, I agree with you on that. And, you know, I, about a couple of years ago, I posted something on my Facebook page. I said, when you're deciding who to vote for as a leader, would you vote? Do you vote for the person or do you vote for the policies? And probably something yes. like 80, 85% said policies, which is extremely disappointing to me. And here's why. If the person has no character, very little character, it doesn't matter what they tell you their policies are. The second somebody offers them a better deal, they're going to change their policies, right? This is the whole smoky back room kind of idea. Yep. And whereas if somebody shows that they have character, somebody shows they have some principles, then whether or not you agree with everything they say, at least you know you can take what they say to the bank. At least you know they have some principles. I mean, the Republican Party hates Liz Cheney right now, and I don't like a single policy that Liz Cheney stands for, I don't think, other than the fact that she had the guts to stand up to all these MAGA imbeciles and say, this guy made some serious mistakes, and we got to stop being... Uh, blind cult members and do something about it. You know, like she she had a little bit of character. She's willing to buck the trend. Nikki Haley's the same way. Nikki Haley's willing to tell the truth, you know, whereas you get these other weirdos like Vivek Ramsaway who just literally says whatever he thinks whoever he's in front of wants to hear. And those, you know, it... it to me, we should be more worried about an individual's character than about what individual policies they may or not may not uh, support. I, I am a huge yes. fan of a lot of people from both sides of the aisle, not because I agree with everything they say or even most of what they say, but because I think that's they have right. character and they, and they have some leadership. And you know, that's maybe I'm getting old. Maybe people. Beckham's naive that, that that really shouldn't matter but I don't know man I, I the way I've seen things is uh most people tell you a bunch of promises and then they don't do any of the things they said whereas uh, a smaller right. group of people they'll they'll make promises and they'll say look I, I gave you my word and I'm I'm gonna follow I'm gonna follow through on that that that's the person I want to be in the foxhole with that's right that that's you know, so far from where we've been, we need to actually get back to some of this stabilized thinking and get, I call it baby food in Washington and, you know, basically all of our state legislators, all of these leaders are 
eating baby food and spewing it out to everybody else. It's not good. There are some great leaders doing some great things out there, but right now what is being portrayed to the world, I'm not liking at all. And it's, it's uh party politics that has really gotten us there instead of cross the aisle. If you need to do the right thing, that that's really a world I miss. It, it hasn't been that way for quite a while. So let's segue into what Brian does for entertainment outside of the computer and you like fly fishing. How often do you get a chance to get away from all of this and cast a line in and just <laughs> relax? I I try to spend quite a bit of time during the summer fly fishing. I fly fish a lot in Colorado, so it's you can fly fish in the winter, but that's a little crazy. That's a little intense. And uh, so most of the summer, I fly fish. I'm lucky in that the area. Uh, where I spend my time in Colorado has a number of what we call gold medal fisheries or gold medal streams, which just means there's a certain number of certain size trout within a certain area. So, and, you know, fly fishing is kind of, I've got a number of different hobbies and what I found, and I'm not sure if you found the same thing. There's, there's, there's hobbies where you just sit there passively and don't really do anything. And then there's hobbies where you're kind of, mentally engaged but you're so focused on a certain task that everything else kind of drops away so they call it the fisherman's trance when i'm in a fly fishing stream i'm really really paying close attention to what i'm doing but i'm really not paying attention to anything else so when i'm done fly fishing it's like i've had this kind of mental uh nap or rest or something it's it's a church winston churchill who's one of my Heroes wrote a book, a very short book called Painting as a Pastime. He took up painting uh, in his later years. And it's a great book. It's a short book about basically what busy people, what kind of pastimes are helpful for busy people. And he said it's really hard. Like, so imagine Winston Churchill, he's fighting the Nazis, fighting the Nazis, fighting the Nazis, constant stimulation for months and months at a time. Then all of a sudden he he just needs to turn it off and go sit on the beach and not do anything like that's that's not possible i mean there's no way you can do that so what he says is it's more like active relaxation so he would go and paint and that requires uh not only a different part of your brain than what he was doing but it also requires super focused attention on one particular thing so it's to me it's very similar to golf it's very similar like jujitsu when i'm in the middle of a we call them roles. When I'm in the middle of a jujitsu fight with somebody, I'm not thinking about what's going on in the office that afternoon. I'm thinking about how do I prevent this guy from choking me unconscious? And so when you're done with jujitsu, golf, fishing, it's it's like you're more relaxed than if, at least I find I'm more relaxed than if I'm sitting there, you know, watching TV and doing some sort of totally passive activity. Do you have a call to action for our listeners today? Yeah, well, I would, so toot my own horn a little bit, Lessons from Leaders is the podcast, and again, 
I'm I'm proud. The reason I'm probably most proud of the podcast is because there's no negativity to it. Really, there it, it's not a gotcha show. It's not like this person is bad or that person is bad. What it is is it's a show where I bring in people who are leaders, either national leaders or just leaders in their community, and people that I think are positive, and we talk about positive leadership and how you can make a positive impact. Uh, on society. And so, you know, as a result of the podcast, I've I've given a couple speeches on leadership to the United States Air Force. I've got a friend who's a colonel in the Air Force who asked me to give a couple speeches. And I just basically gave a talk about what I learned from the podcast from my different podcast guests. And it's amazing when you've had 60 or 70 incredible leaders, if you pay attention, you start seeing patterns. And I'll tell you what the number one thing that I've heard about leadership again and again and again from people from all different walks of life. I'm talking about military generals, sports stars, New York Times bestselling authors, politicians, judges, you name it. The number one thing I've heard is that leadership is about service. It's about what you can do for the people you lead. It's not about what you can do for yourself. And that that sounds kind of trite and it sounds maybe a little bit obvious. I can tell you I'm 50 years old. It took me 45 years to figure that out. <laughs> like nobody cares. Nobody cares what you do for yourself. Nobody. What you'll be remembered for is what you do for other people. And so I would encourage people to listen to podcasts. I think, I think there's some amazing, amazing guest on there i can tell you if you're if you're interested in listening to it the very first episode you may want to listen to it's the most popular episode is a friend of mine who served as a prosecuting attorney in harris county he won his first 44 criminal trials and then he spent the next 10 two years in solitary confinement in a french prison for trying to smuggle ecstasy from france to the united states it's an absolutely amazing story there's a book about it called lawyer x and it is a deep, deep conversation about wow. what it's like to be in solitary confinement, what it's like to think you'll never see freedom again, you know, uh, the war on drugs, stuff like that. That's a really, really cool episode. But there's a bunch of neat episodes um, out there. So I would encourage you, if you're interested in hearing from some really amazing people, check out Lessons from Leaders. So, Brian, how can people reach out, get a hold of you? I'm on all the social media uh, under my own name, Brian Beckham. My website for my firm is www.vbattorneys.com. That's V as in Victor, B as in Brian Attorneys, vbattorneys.com. And uh, you can find my podcast at my personal website, brianbeckham.org, brianbeckham.org. Brian, it's been fabulous speaking to you. I could speak for hours with you and still want more information. <laughs> I thank you for spending the time here today and thank you for being part of the dead America podcast. Thank you, Ed. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun, man. A lot of fun. You got a great show. We appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way please share like subscribe and join us right back here next week for another great episode of 
Dead America podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon, wherever you may be.